I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guests are Drs. Anupam Jenna and Christopher Warsham. Dr. Jenna is an economist, physician, and the Joseph P. Newhouse professor at Harvard Medical School. He hosts the Freakonomics MD podcast. Dr. Christopher Warsham is a researcher, pulmonologist, and critical care physician at Harvard Medical School. They are the recent co-authors of Random Acts of Medicine, the hidden forces that sway doctors, impact patients, and shape our health. Thank you both for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So the, the whole premise of your fascinating book and your research relies on the idea of a natural experiment. I think many of our listeners are familiar with the idea of a randomized controlled trial where patients are randomly assigned to a treatment or another and outcomes are compared. And that way we determine whether treatment affects outcome without worrying about many of the biases that come with non-randomization. Babu, maybe you can talk to us about the concept of a natural experiment in research. What advantages and disadvantages are involved in in studying natural experiments? Sure. So, you know, a natural experiment is a situation where people are exposed by chance to one path or another. And Chris and I are both doctors, so we think about paths involving medical care. And uh, the challenge, of course, is if you just look at real-world data, the people who take certain medications are different than people who who don't. And uh, if they're different in ways that are correlated with their outcomes, then you might ascribe any differences in outcomes like mortality to the treatment, when in fact it wasn't the treatment. It was that these people who took the medication were different in a lot of other ways. So a natural experiment is a situation where people by chance end up on some treatment and others by chance don't. So maybe I'll give you an example from Chris's world, actually. Suppose you wanted to understand whether or not certain critical care medications improve mortality, or maybe even they they lower mortality, they, they, they're harmful. If you look at people who get some advanced medication to raise their blood pressure, and you look at people who don't in an ICU, and you just compare their outcomes, my guess would be that people who get the medication do more poorly. And you wouldn't want to say it's because the medication led them to do poorly. It's because the people who are doing poorly, who are on a negative trajectory in terms of their illness, receive the medication. And how do you get around that? Well, you either do a randomized trial or you say, can we think of a situation where some people by chance ended up on that medication and others not? And one thing that might cause that chance occurrence is a shortage of a critical care medication, like uh, norepinephrine, uh, a a blood pressure medication, a a medication that's used to raise blood pressure in critically ill patients in the ICU. And there was a study by Hannah Wunsch, who's a critical care doctor now in in New York, and others that looked at what happened when there was a shortage, and people during the specific period of time where there's a shortage didn't have access to that medication in the ICU. Did they do better, worse, or no different? They actually do worse. And so that's sort of a way to get at the causal effect of a treatment, leveraging this, what we call a natural experiment. In this case, it was a a supply shock to the medication. It's very interesting. I mean, I, in some ways there's an advantage over the randomized controlled trial, probably speaking heresy here a little bit, because, you know, in a randomized controlled trial, the inclusion exclusion criteria are very strict. So you select for a very 
selective population. And that population doesn't necessarily reflect what actually happens in real clinical practice. And these patients are monitored very closely. They have their follow-up appointments. Their, you know, research coordinators check in with them. Physicians check in with them. And so it doesn't model what actually happens, whereas these natural experiments seem more accurately to model the real world. Do you think that's right, Chris? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we use what a lot of people call real world data to, I guess we're not conducting the natural experiments, but we're looking for them sitting in real world data, whether it's data that comes like we often use in insurance claims or electronic health records. It's what's actually happening to patients. So I think that idea of it can tell us more than randomized controlled trials. It, It also can tell us less right? Because sometimes that data is not complete. It doesn't have everything we would like to know. So there are strengths and weaknesses, but they also importantly allow us to answer questions that we couldn't reasonably answer with a randomized trial. So if, for example, we want to study the harms of something we're pretty sure is harmful, it is not ethical to randomly expose people to that harmful thing, right? But if we take the example of air pollution, we cannot randomize people on purpose to inhale dirty air. But when dirty air blows in one direction or another, and you know, you take that example of something literally as random as which way the wind is blowing, <laughs> you can see what that dirty air is doing to people when by chance they end up being exposed to it. And there are some cool studies looking at, at things like that, that that help us estimate the negative effects of air pollution on lung health, heart health, you name it. So when we can't reasonably do a randomized trial, when it's not practical, when it's not ethical, natural experiments are actually a really nice way to answer questions that we need answers to. Babu, how do you guys uh, account for, I mean, bias is always the big criticism of any kind of retrospective study or any you know claims database uh, study. How do you think about bias with these natural experiments? How do you account for it? What's the approach here? You know, usually I use my right hand and I just wave it away. <laughs> Sometimes if my right hand is occupied, I use my left hand and it, it, it equally is good. <laughs> you know, we're, it's a great question and we're, we're very thoughtful about it. You know, I'll say the following, as you alluded to earlier, and there's lots of observational studies out there. I think one of the things that economics has done well is advance the use of these natural experiments and taking really seriously this issue of bias. Whereas I think in the medical literature, um, it's not adequately addressed really at all to any sufficient degree, which I think is a major problem with some of the studies that are out there. But let me give you a couple of examples, and and Chris will probably have some more ideas of the ways that we try to establish causality. So first, we just start with the idea, you know, is it, does it sound reasonable that this might be a natural experiment? So if we're looking at what happens uh, to people who have a heart attack when cardiologists are out of town at a major cardiology conference and we see that they do better, do we think that people are choosing to have heart attacks differentially or have cardiac arrest differentially when a meeting is being held or not? So it just doesn't pass the sniff test. You know, People don't know what the AHA, American Heart Association, and American College of Cardiology are. Most people wouldn't know that. And they certainly wouldn't know when those meetings are being held so that they could time their heart attack or cardiac arrest. So that's past the sniff test. 
probably reasonable to think that the exposure is kind of random to happening either at the time of the meetings or at a different time. The next thing we do is what you would see in any randomized trial. We produce what we call a table one, which is we look at the characteristics of the people who are exposed to the uh, natural experiment, either the treatment or intervention or the control. And we show that the characteristics of those patients are basically identical. So our people who have a heart attack or cardiac arrest during the dates of cardiology meetings, do they have the same characteristics as people who have those same conditions on other days of the year? And the answer is we show that they do. They're, they're basically identical, just like you'd see in a randomized trial. And then we go further and say, all right, are there other things that we can do to, to exist, you know, exonerate the possibility that this is due to chance? We might put in something that we call falsification outcomes. So, for example, in the cardiology meeting study that, that, that I described and we talk about in, in the book, I think the chapter is called What Happens When All the Cardiologists Leave Town, we show that people who have cardiac conditions during the dates of cardiology meetings, they do better. Now, you might say, maybe it's something about meetings in general. All right, well, do people who have hip fractures or gastrointestinal bleeding, do they fare any better or worse during the dates of cardiology meetings when cardiologists might be out of town? No, they don't. And it kind of makes sense because there's they're different diseases. Or vice versa, do people who have cardiac conditions do better or worse during the dates of orthopedic society meetings or gastrointestinal society meetings? And the answer is there's no relationship there. So we kind of think about all the the threats to the causal validity of the study and try to tick one off one by one. That's sort of the general approach. And, and I, I would just add, you know, it, it, nowadays it, it's not hard to find. You can crack open any of the major newspapers and see people doing data analysis, right? There's so much data out there and so many people, which I think is a good thing that people are are able to work with data and look at it and learn from it. But when you are sitting on, you know, literally billions of data points, you can pretty much look at anything you want to look at and you can come up with things you want to look into. But it's really important that we do all of those things that Bapu just mentioned. So we spend a lot more time thinking about research ideas doing investigations into whether or not there actually is a natural experiment here. And if we can't do all of those things that Bapu just mentioned, we don't consider that a good natural experiment. We're not going to publish that study. So only a small minority of the things we initially start to investigate, can we eventually say with a reasonable degree of confidence that this is actually representing an underlying phenomenon that that looks like cause and effect. And here's the 10, 15 supporting analyses we did to en- ensure that that if we were wrong, this is what we would expect to see, and we don't see it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like you and your study group basically have to kind of steal man or still person the other side as you're thinking through an idea and come up with all the holes in the proposal that you possibly can what is that chris what does that look like when you're when you guys are doing that in a in a research meeting or over time you know through email whatever it is yeah so we have some people might call us a lab but we have our quote unquote lab meetings but bapu calls them ideas meetings and we meet for 
60 or 90 minutes multiple times a week with research assistants, students ranging from, we we've have high school students all the way up to people with multiple doctorate degrees joining our meetings to brainstorm ideas and to try to think of all of the possible other things we might need to investigate when we're trying to answer a given question. Like Bapu was saying, you don't, you have to think about these things in advance, right? If we want to see whether when the cardiologists leave town, care for patients with non-cardiac conditions, right? That, That we don't think a cardiologist leaving town is going to affect patients with hip fractures. We have to think about all of these things in advance before we do the study. And so we spend a lot of time working with people, thinking outside the box, bringing different perspectives into any given research question before we go out and, and start looking at the data. Because like you said, it there's a lot of work that needs to be done if we want to be really sound about the science that goes into this. Hmm. Let's uh, let's get into some of the experiments that you cover in the book. Uh, they're they're all really fascinating, and maybe we can start with uh, the question: Are kids with summer birthdays more likely to get the flu? So, Baba, can you take us through how you answered this question? What you found? Sure. Yeah. So this is a, a paper that Chris and I worked on. Actually, probably one of our earliest papers together. Both Chris and I have kids with summer birthdays, August birthdays, in fact. And the origin story for this study is that I took my three-year-old to the pediatrician uh, in August for his annual checkup. And as I'm walking out of the office, this is a few years ago, the nurse says, come back in a few weeks, we'll have the flu shot ready. And you know, now it's middle of September, the flu shot is available, but in the middle of August, the flu shot is often not available. And I thought as I walked to the offices, gee, had my son been born two or three weeks later, he would have gotten the flu shot in the office that day. And by the way, I took him to the pediatrician at the end of August this year, and they had the shot available. So he got the shot in the office. And so I go to the office and Chris and I and and um, uh, our colleagues are chatting and like, oh, this feels like it could be an interesting natural experiment. It seems like kids who have summer birthdays might be less likely to get a flu shot, which would be interesting to show by itself. And if so, they might be more likely to get the flu compared with kids with, um, uh, you know, let's say October birthdays. And so Chris and I, we had a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago, which showed exactly that. Um, the summer birthday kids are less likely to get flu shots by quite a bit. They're more likely to get the flu. And the other interesting thing was that their uh, family members were more likely to get the flu, which is sort of an interesting I won't call it a twist, but it's predictable, but it was nice to sort of see that finding that you you would expect. And from a policy perspective, Chris, like how, how do we think about a conclusion like this? You know, how does it alter the way we think about making flu vaccines available to children? I mean, I, I, I just from the very little that I know about the flu vaccine process, there is this time that has to go by because you sort of use the data from the Southern Hemisphere to then make the flu shot for the Northern Hemisphere. So, you know, how, how do we think about this from a policy perspective? Yeah, I think so. In this study, the kind of knee jerk 
reaction is, well, if kids born in the summer are having trouble getting their flu shots, let's just make sure all kids are born in the fall, right? (laughs) Obviously, that's not practical. So then it has to be, all right, well, based on our study, it really looks like the barrier here is a logistical one, right? Bapu had to bring his son back. That extra pediatrician's appointment, if you have young children, you know, is is actually a real pain, right? It's a half a day of your life, your kid's life. You have to bring them in there screaming and crying, all of that, right? So if they're already at the doctors, that's the time we want to do it. So the question is, how do we make logistical barriers to getting something like the seasonal flu shot lower? And that there's not a one size fits all solution to that. I think depending on the community, the patient, there's a lot of different answers, but there's a lot of things out there that have been tried. So, you know, step one is just things like making there be after hours and weekend um, flu shot clinics available um, so that people don't have to take off work. Like if you're someone who we have really nice, flexible schedules, and it's still hard for us to do it. If you're an hourly worker, you're losing money to take your kid in for that extra flu shot appointment. So make it easier to get there. Make them closer to home. They're, but pre-COVID, there used to be all these restrictions on kids less than five years old getting uh, vaccines at a pharmacy. Your local Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, independent pharmacy is generally going to be much closer than your average doctor's office. Um, why can't they be giving flu shots to kids? And they are um, doing so more now after COVID. There uh, have been experiments looking at in-school vaccination programs where all the parent has to do is sign a permission slip. There are uh, During COVID, we saw idle ambulances keeping vaccines on ice in the ambulance and between calls, they could go to children's homes and give them vaccines. There are many, many different ways to do this, but I think the biggest thing is to recognize logistical barriers are actually a huge problem. And with influenza in particular, the reason we saw that these kids who were less likely to get the flu shot were more likely to spread it to their family members is that young children are the primary spreaders of influenza every year. And so, like you said, once we learn what strains of influenza we think will be circulating and they start manufacturing the vaccine. The vaccines are oftentimes ready to go in late August, September. It's oftentimes a question of getting it to these kids. And and just to put numbers on this, kids born in June, this is kids age two to five, were about, I think about 41, 42% of them would get their flu shot in a given year. Kids born in October, which is sort of the recommended month and when there's the most flu shots available, 55% of those kids were getting their flu shot. So we're looking at an enormous difference between summer born kids and fall born kids. And and Baba, was there, uh, when you guys published this paper, was there a response from policymakers or people in industry, politics to it saying, how can we, you know, do things? What was the reception? I, I would say generally no. You know, that's, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's a certainly over the last 10 or 12 years I've been doing this kind of work. A defining feature of my work is that I don't see any policy changes as a result. And Chris and I have been working together for the last few years. I don't know if Chris would disagree. You know, Aaron, I kind of think, and, and maybe Chris will have a similar or different take, I kind of think of the work as being more sort of basic science in nature. What do I mean by that? 
Well, you know, a lot of health policy work is literally that. It's policy work. It's policy evaluation. A researcher sees that there's a new policy, a federal policy, a state policy, maybe an insurer policy, and they study the impact or they evaluate that policy on some set of outcomes, might be healthcare costs, utilization, or clinical outcomes. And then the answer to that question is important from a policy perspective because it tells you whether or not that policy works or not. And if it works, people might then look at it and say, all right, well, this research tells me I should be implementing this policy in more places or the opposite. Whereas the kind of work that the, that Chris and I do, I think it's, much, it's kind of several levels b- below that. It's not, you know, we're not advocating, as Chris said, tongue in cheek, we're not saying that people should be born in the fall. That's not the policy implication. The policy implication is something about barriers. But most importantly, we're kind of thinking about interesting ways in which our health, uh, healthcare decisions that we make are affected by things that, you know, in hindsight are predictable, but may go unnoticed. And sometimes they reveal interesting things about how healthcare works or doesn't work. In the cardiology meeting study I alluded to earlier, one of the data point that it had mentioned was that we found that rates of certain cardiac procedures fall during the dates of those meetings. So how could it be that when procedures that we think are good fall, outcomes get better? And the only way that's possible is if for some people, those procedures were actually not helpful and could even be harmful. So I thought it was sort of an interesting way to illustrate this idea that less might be more. Now, we're not going and saying, this procedure, you should do more or less of it. That procedure, you should do more or less of it. That kind of sort of thing. That's a more clinically applicable, applicable uh, research question. I kind of think of this as taking a step back and saying, all right, how do you show this just phenomenon generally? Yeah, because mm. when people ask, you know, what kind of research do you do? And if you want to get specific about it, we, we call this sort of health policy research or health services research. And the way I've always viewed it is that, you know, during our medical training, we look at the human being as an organism with organs and systems. And it's our job when we're at the bedside to understand sort of the pushes and pulls of the body. If this organ isn't working well, um, what are the ramifications of that? If we can correct something on one system of the body, how does it impact the other systems of the body? And I think it's critical that we look at our healthcare system as an organism, right? That has underlying physiology, that when there's a push in one part of the system, there's a pull in another part of the system. There are actors within the system, patients, physicians, nurses, administrators, policymakers that are all part of this healthcare system. And so a lot of what our work is doing is just trying to understand the basic quote unquote, biology of the healthcare system. How does it actually work? And in doing that, uh, we can inform policymakers. But there's so much more to healthcare policy, creating healthcare policy, making changes to that system than just the underlying science and the data. And that's where other aspects of um, who we are as you know, American people come into play. Um, that really goes beyond the scope of what we're doing. Our job is simply to try to understand our system, why, why it does what it does, and what we might expect if we make a change one way or another. Hmm. Uh, there's a, a disturbing chapter in the book on ADHD diagnoses in children and how birth month affects whether a child receives this diagnosis. 
uh, and this is separate from whether these children ought to receive this diagnosis. Bapa, what was the research question you asked here? How did you conduct the natural experiment? What did you find? So this was a study with Tim Layton, who's an economist at, at Harvard, and a couple other people. What we were interested in knowing was whether or not kids with summer birthdays are, are more likely to get ADHD diagnoses in states where there's a September 1 cutoff for school entry. So the way it works in many states, you know, more than or close to half of the U.S. states is that September 1st is the date where if you're five by September 1, you can enter kindergarten. If you turn five, let's say on September 5th, then you have to wait a year to enter kindergarten. And that generates this phenomenon in classes, not just kindergarten classes, but every grade, that the August-born kids are the youngest kids in their class. And the September-born kids will tend to be the oldest kids in their class. And what we found was that August-born kids are more likely to be diagnosed and medically treated with medications for ADHD compared to September-born kids. And the intuition is that the August-born kids, they're relatively young for their grade. And so when they are, you know, more inattentive or fidgety or uh, a little bit, you know, less focused in class, maybe that's reflective of their relative immaturity compared with their peers, not, you know, a medical diagnosis of ADHD. And yet it can be hard for people who are making the decisions to kind of see that fact. You, you don't see it, by the way, for something like diabetes. Diabetes is objectively diagnosed with laboratory studies. That's not the case for ADHD. That's where the subjective diagnosis um, comes in. And I'll just say, you know, we we sort of um, uh, take the stand that this is more likely to be over-diagnosis than under-diagnosis because you could say, well, you know what? You showed that kids in August with August birthdays are more likely to be diagnosed with AD, ADHD. Well, doesn't that mean that kids with September birthdays are being under-diagnosed? That could be true. I think there's more concern about overdiagnosis than there is underdiagnosis, but the the reality is probably that there's both problems, and that's true elsewhere in medicine as well. There are conditions that are quote unquote overdiagnosed, and there are situations where diseases go under or are undiagnosed. So it's probably a little bit of both, but it is sort of illustrative of the of the idea that medical diagnoses can be subjective. They can be context-specific. And the way that we make diagnoses isn't always sort of as black and white and prescriptive as we might think it should be, or we like it to be. Yeah. And these very subtle things of, you know, cutoffs for grades can have a tremendous impact on not just children at that age, but moving forward, you know, how they do in some ways for the rest of their lives. I mean, I, I think when I was reading the chapter, I was thinking about, there's a scholar at Brookings, Richard Reeves, who has written about how young women and girls do significantly better than boys in school. I mean, the, the rates of uh, valedictorians, gra- you know, graduating from college, uh, GPAs, women do far better, or girls do far better than boys do. One of his solutions, he wrote an essay in The Atlantic about this, is, is to sort of redshirt young boys because boys mature later than young girls do. So you hold boys back a year. Um, It's an interesting theory and and makes sense in certain respects to me. You know, we, we just talked about like resisting the kind of making policy prescriptions or proscriptions. But, you know, Chris, how do we 
change our inclination to diagnose ADHD? You know, is this something that we need to pay more attention to as physicians, as parents? How do you think about fixes to something like this? It, it's a good question, and uh, you know, I'm we're, we're biased as, as parents of young children ourselves, and and you know, there's a sort of axis of child, teacher, doctor, parent, right, and everything in that pathway, uh, for lack of a better word, is impacting this diagnostic process. I think usually the first thing we say when we see something like this happening, before we we start thinking about um, you know potential interventions to to correct it, is just awareness of it. And when we're talking about what cognitive biases, um, the one at play here is is what uh, you might call a representativeness heuristic, which says um, this is how a kindergartner should act. Right. And we have a sort of set of standards for a kindergartner. And in our heads, that doesn't allow us to think about how should a kindergartner for, who's old for their class should act compared to a kindergartner who's younger for their class to act. And so the first step in a lot of these is, is to just make people, whether it's teachers, parents, doctors, aware that these types of biases um, could be impacting their decision making, and oftentimes that can serve to just slow down the process. Right, you're you're a pediatrician. You're with a kid for 20 minutes. You've got you're running late. Right, your your brain is operating on the the super highway. Right, to just get get moving. And so sometimes it's just a matter of slowing down to really think: Is this actually ADHD, or is this kid just young for their age? And if we sat on this for six months. And reevaluated, then might it be different? So, so that's sort of the, the the blanket answer for a lot of these things when we're looking at cognitive biases. Moving on from there, uh, it's like we were talking about earlier. Uh, our studies and studies like it don't necessarily prescribe a policy treatment, but they do sort of lend support to saying, well, this might actually be the policy intervention that could be most likely to succeed. But at the end of the day. All we have to do is to try that intervention, perhaps in a more controlled setting like a randomized trial or not, and then study it afterwards. Right? That's that's all we have when it comes to what is the effect of an intervention, because there's oftentimes all kinds of unanticipated consequences to making such a change, right? If, if we say boys start at this age and girls start kindergarten at this age, off the top of my head, there's not a lot coming to mind, but you could imagine there could be ripple effects, what an economist would call externalities of doing such an intervention that can be really hard to anticipate. And so oftentimes the only answer is to try something and be a scientist about it and measure it. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think of these kind of ripple effects. Uh, I think of the a study cite Bapu about about this fascinating question of whether being prescribed an opiate for a one-time emergency room visit affects the likelihood of receiving opiates in the future. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit about that because that seemed just kind of astonishing to me. Yeah, I mean that is sort of you know the book is titled Random Acts of Medicine, so this is like you know random acts of medicine at its core. Yeah, the question was. If you look at people who go to the emergency department and by chance are seen by a doctor who is more likely to prescribe opioids, that's by chance, that's random, versus a doctor who's less likely to prescribe opioids, 
then what impact does that have on A, the likelihood that that individual person walks out of the emergency department with a prescription for an opioid? And then more interestingly, what happens long-term? Because, you know, it's, even though we know that opioids are, um, you know, can be addicting, there's lots of people who don't get, you know, don't have problems with addiction when they receive opioids for short-term, short-term acute pain. And so this was a way in which we could sort of analyze this question of looking at people who didn't have uh, any opioid dependence issues prior to coming to the doctor, they just showed up there in the emergency department and were more or less likely to be prescribed an opioid by chance. And those people who, who again, randomly happened to see a high prescribing doctor were more likely long-term to be on opioids. So it suggests that one prescription could could take hold, which again is not surprising, but we sort of quantitate quantify that magnitude in a way that you might expect to see in a randomized trial, where you randomize people to higher or lower amounts of opioids and see what the long term effects are, um, and quantify the magnitude of those effects. And this controlled for, I imagine, the you know the actual illness itself. It wasn't people who were having you know cancer related you know bone bony mets related pain versus you know people who just came in with a headache right i mean the 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 groups were in some ways equivalent in the uh illnesses they presented with that's correct yeah and and in fact in these types of studies if they're done well you don't actually have to control for anything you know in a randomized trial when you randomize people to two different groups typically the answer that you get for the effect of the treatment is the same whether you account or don't account in a regression, for example, for those individual factors like age, other demographics, other chronic conditions. And the reason why is because those two factors are balanced across two groups. And we see the same thing in in many of our natural experiments that we can either quote unquote, adjust our estimates, meaning we control for the variables in a regression uh, that you might worry about being factors that affect the outcome, or you don't control for them. It doesn't really matter if it's a good natural experiment because you have that quasi-randomization. Yeah. The book title is so appropriate because for something like this, I can even imagine, you know, I'm a, a stroke neurologist, but even putting myself in in the shoes of, you know, emergency room doctor, or thinking about my own practice, it probably depends, if I'm being intellectually honest, it probably depends in certain respects on the day, hour of the day, you know, circumstances of my own life. When there's not an evidence-based treatment, it may depend on those things what or, or the patient themselves, the way I, you know, interact with the patient, it may depend on those things, like what you choose to do or prescribe. And the idea that a simple choice of giving a short-term, you know, opiate prescription will then have an effect on what is prescribed by other doctors in the future. I mean, it's a little haunting to me, honestly. Chris, how did you sort of think about this? Yeah. I mean, in one of our goals with random acts of medicine is to try to make it clear, especially to you know people who are not inside of it like us, to, to try to demonstrate some of the ways in which medicine is really messy. Uh, especially, you know, you're you're a stroke doctor. You're talking um, acute care for patients with a very serious condition. We're both, you know, work in the hospital. 
when we're talking about evidence-based treatments where there's very solid, convincing evidence that this patient should have this, that is the minority of patients that we treat. Everybody comes in with a very unique set of circumstances, um, both within their body and at home, and, and they have different priorities, values, things that you need to work with in order to figure out what is the best treatment for this patient. And there is so much subjectivity involved in what we do, especially in acute care, but also a lot of this in in outpatient care as well. Um, And whenever there is that sort of gray area where we have to navigate it, we have to really be a doctor, right? Uh, Being a doctor, you don't need to go through four years of medical school and residency and all of that to um, follow a, a algorithm-based guideline, right? So much of what our job actually is, is navigating gray area. Um, And whenever we're doing that, we are going to be influenced by all kinds of factors, whether it's the way we grew up, where we come from, um, the language we speak, what we look like, or some of the, you know, whether my kid was up in the middle of the night last night masking for water and I'm a little bit tired uh, coming in this morning. All of those things impact the way we behave as physicians. And some of those arbitrary things are going to have impacts on patients. And it's a little bit scary. Um, but it's also really highlights the the sort of humanity of what we do as physicians, that that we are people too. Um, we are not perfect. We're not flawless. Um, and so when we work with patients, we try our best every day to to navigate whatever biases we might bring in that day with the recognition that that as long as we're doing our best, we're working with the information we have and doing what we can with it. This is not an exact science. In in fact, it's quite the opposite most of the time. Even the experts amongst us, like the very senior kind of experts amongst us, not that you guys aren't experts, but the sort of really veteran folks, you know, make these mistakes too, and, or maybe not mistakes, but have this practice variation too. I I think, Bapu, the, the study you mentioned earlier about what happens to patients when cardiologists are away at cardiology conferences. And maybe you can talk to us about the characteristics of the cardiologists who are away at these conferences. You know, the the prestige of the universities that they've attended, the grants they've received, and the actual difference between outcomes, you know, before and during or after and during these conferences. Yeah. So we had two studies on this. So the first study simply showed that during the dates of these conferences, people with cardiac conditions like a heart attack, cardiac arrest, or high-risk heart failure, their mortality rate is lower. And so we did a second study trying to unpack what, first of all, this is a a controversial study when it came out in 2015. And I think there's a reasonable question of, is this sort of just like, you know, dumb luck? Is this, can this be replicated? And we said, all right, well, let's try to do a similar study. And this time, let's focus on interventional cardiologists. That's a very specific group of cardiologists who do interventions. And let's look at what happens to people who are hospitalized with cardiac, with with a heart attack during the dates of interventional cardiology meetings. And we basically found very similar results. But we went one step further and said, all right, can we figure out who these cardiologists are who might remain in town during the meetings based on our observation that they were billing Medicare 
for services during the dates of the meeting, so we think that they stayed back, versus people who were not billing Medicare during the dates of those meetings, who we think might have been attendees. And we look at the characteristics of those doctors. The doctors who stay behind, let's call them the stayers, and the doctors who go to the meetings, let's call them the, the meeting attendees, the attendees tended to be pretty similar in age, similar rates of male cardiologists. Most of the interventional cardiologists were men, but they had many more publications. They were more likely to run clinical trials, have NIH grants, and they also tended to be much more procedural. So if you just look at the total procedural volume of the cardiologists who are meeting goers, as we estimate them to be, they tended to be much more procedurally oriented than the, the people who stayed behind. And you know what made us think is that, all right, well, this is a situation where if you've got a person who tends to do a lot of procedures, and then you take a patient and you randomize them to see that type of cardiologist, interventional cardiologist, versus one who does fewer procedures, who do you think is going to be more likely to do a procedure on that person? It's probably the ones who do more of those procedures generally, because that's what they know, that's what they do. Perhaps they even see benefits from it, so they think that more people would benefit than might actually would benefit. Um, and I think that's what's going on. I forget the old adage about it. You know, if you see a hammer, use a nail. What, what, what is it? Yeah, you know something like that. If yeah. you have like, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you have uh, a yes, hammer, yeah. everything looks like a nail. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's there's, an, there's an, an analogy for orthopedic surgeons that I'm also forgetting, too. Um, uh, and so I think that might be what's what's going on. But again, it goes to your point, Aaron, that there are lots of things that affect the way that we practice medicine. Another one that's really interesting to think about is risk aversion. Um, when you see a person in the in the emergency room, your decision as a doctor to recommend they be admitted to the hospital versus being discharged home might depend greatly not just on your medical knowledge, resources in the hospital that day. But just on your level of risk aversion, how comfortable are you as a doctor to take a risk and say, I think this person will probably be okay at home? A risk-averse doctor wouldn't say that. They'd say, I want, I want them to be admitted so they can be monitored. Yeah, and I, I, I think about, Chris, what you just said too about checking, sort of checking our own biases when we take care of patients. And again, we all have them. But in this particular circumstance, interventional cardiologist who is just more likely to operate may need to stop and say, wait a second, like, is this actually something that really needs to be done? Or am I doing this because I'm used to doing this more aggressively? You know, <laughs> another, another kind of interesting finding um, from, from your book and from your work. So on surgeons' birthdays, Chris, do patients do better or worse? So this is this is a on the surface it's it's a fun study that Bapu and, and some of his colleagues did and, and really the idea was to get at actually a really important underlying phenomenon that like we talk about we want to understand how the healthcare system works so the goal of the study was to try to get at what is what might be the impact in the operating room of distraction. And if it's your birthday, you know, obviously as adults, our birthday is a little less exciting than it is for kids, but you might get, you know, people texting you, you, if you work closely with an operating room team, they're going to know it's your birthday. You might, you know, whatever, have a special lunch planned, have a special dinner planned. Your, your mind's going to be elsewhere. 
right? And there's a lot of evidence that surgeons getting into sort of this flow state, right? Being in the zone, so to speak, while they're operating can actually be really important. So if they're distracted by their birthday, you, it sort of gets at, well, what is the impact of breaking that flow state potentially? So what they did was they they looked at patients who had surgery, um, and this was emergent surgery, so or urgent surgery, so it wouldn't have been a pre-planned surgery. Whether they got that surgery on the doc on a surgeon's birthday versus the days surrounding their birthday, under the idea that if they were being operated on their birthday, the surgeon might be distracted. And what they found was that post-surgical complications were higher for patients who were operated upon by surgeons on their birthday. And when you look at those same surgeons when they're operating on patients not on their birthday, their complication, their post-op complication rates were lower. And so, again, this comes back to what do we ban surgeons from operating on their birthday? I I don't think that's a reasonable answer, (laughs) but it does tell us that, you know, there is this role that distraction can play in the operating room. And there's all sorts of, dis- we're not surgeons, but having having been in there <laughs> during medical school, there are no shortage of distractions in the operating room. And it does make you wonder if more interventions were to be taken to reduce distraction in the operating room, making it quieter, managing pages to surgeons while they're operating, things like that. Um, How might that impact patient outcomes? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think back to my experience in medical school in the OR, and a lot of the surgeons would have music playing in the background. And I always wondered like how they did it. Because I, you know, for me, and everyone has their, I guess, needs in terms of concentration. But for me, if I were trying to memorize something or study something or writing a paper in school, I I couldn't have music on the background because it was just too distracting for me. So it's, I don't know, it's very interesting. I, I, maybe we should all just have our birthdays off. That's, that's probably a good idea. Right. But, yeah. but the analogy I would, would draw is, you know, a lot of people, for example, listen to music while they're working out and they're going for a run or whatever. Um, and the job of a surgeon is a lot different than our jobs or, or your job as a neurologist. You know, when they're in the operating room, uh, they are, especially the, the more experienced surgeons, are really relying on muscle memory and a lot of sort of automatic processes. And so it could be that that music is helping their minds get into that flow state that actually helps them work better and trust their instincts more, right? It's when they feel the, those two tissue planes with their fingers, what, are the, what decisions are they going to make based on what they're feeling? And those are microsecond decisions that um, their, their headspace, it, it's much more potentially important than, than you might think. Whereas, yeah, I'm the same way. I I can't have, you know, music playing while I'm reviewing a patient's chart and trying to think of what bizarre diagnosis could be explaining these unexplained symptoms, but the medical doctor or or the neurologist or some of these more cognitive specialties, our job is a lot different than what a surgeon is doing in the operating room. Right. And the music may be meditative in some way, helping them reach that flow state, I see. And the other thing, the operating room is already noisy. So it's sort of taking the noise of the operating room and maybe controlling a little bit more. It's not like a quiet place. Like, you know, Aaron, when you're studying in the library, it's probably quiet. And so adding that music might be more distracting. But if you were studying in a 
you know, cafe, then you might want the music. Yeah, definitely. That's true. Yeah. And there's all these other factors I think about, you know, if in my time in the operating room, if you watch a surgeon working with a scrub tech that they've worked with for a long time, there's just this absolutely seamless, like it seems choreographed, but it is not. Um, the way they pass them instruments, the way they anticipate, the way the nurse um, in the room um, can see what's happening and, and knows what's happening, the way they interact with the anesthesiologist, all of it depends on them being sort of in the zone. Um, in a way that's that's kind of hard for us to understand, but uh, your, your typical surgeon um, can will speak to this and they do all the time. Yeah. And to that point, Chris, I mean, no, yeah, like not just the scrub tech, but knowing the anesthesiologist probably has some positive impact on their, the surgery itself. No, being familiar with the resident too, who's helping in the operating room, um, probably helps in some way too, just the, um, the chemistry and flow of it all. It's amazing how many factors go into all of this. Yeah, there's some evidence in it that sort of this team that teams that work together often tend to get better outcomes. Um, and so these team dynamics are, are really of great interest, especially in these higher acuity scenarios like an emergency surgery or the emergency department trauma bay. There's been a lot of research and, and sort of practices that have been borrowed from other industries like aviation or or like nuclear safety around sort of how do we get teams of people, each of whom is a human with their own human limitations, how do we get them to work together in a way that is safe, but also helps them achieve the goals they need to achieve? One of the findings that resonated with, with me is that the trust between physician and patient is important and it can, and it can affect outcomes. And it makes sense, you know, if you trust your physician, you're more likely to follow through with a recommendation that they, they he or she makes. And it means the physician doesn't feel the need maybe to be as paternalistic or, or scolding or whatever kind of negative emotion it is. Um, and, you know, he or she can just trust that the patient is taking the recommendation seriously. And you spend the last chapter of the book discussing uh, politics at the bedside. And personally, my own practice is really just not to discuss politics with patients because I, I know my patients come from a lot of different uh, backgrounds and have different ideas about the way things should or should not work. And I, you know, my, my feeling is it, it creates maybe a bit of skepticism on the part of patients about their physician if the physician disagrees with them about political ideas. Uh, it'd be interesting to look at the question, do patients tr trust their doctors more or less if they have an opposite political opinion? But based on your research, and I, I'd like to hear from both of you on this, how do you think about the, the politics of the doctor-patient relationship at bedside? Where do politics begin and end in the examination room from, from the work that you've done? So actually, let me just let me talk about trust if it's okay, and then Chris can talk about the politics side. I think the question of trust is really interesting, and we have been thinking a lot about an elegant way to show that trust matters. Why do I say that? Because if you survey people, survey patients, and ask them, "Do you trust your doctor?" and then you look at whether or not they're more adherent to their medications than patients who quote unquote or who report not trusting their doctor. And you find that those who trust their doctor take more medications, take their medications more often or show up for follow-up visits more often. You can't infer anything about the causal effect of trust from that because the people who report trusting their doctor might be different in a lot of other ways. 
So we're always thinking about shocks to trust, something that shocks or you know initiates distrust in someone of the medical establishment. It could be news about doctors in a particular medical system doing something incorrectly or badly. It could be a malpractice allegation. Uh, it could be a bad experience with a medication that they were prescribed or a surgery that they received. All things that might lead you to distrust a doctor. Could even be differences in political ideology. But I think that this is an area that's sort of ripe for better empirical work, creative empirical work, but we haven't seen seen much of it. But that's where I'd be kind of pushing us to think, looking for experiments, if you will, where people's trust is shocked in a positive or a negative way. But I don't know. And Chris, you know, has thought a lot about the politics issue. We've done some work on that as well. Yeah, I think so. So just to sort of talk about what data is out there, and we do talk about this in in the last chapter of Random Acts of Medicine, uh, it, the the data from what we can tell, and it's also to be clear, very hard to determine the political leanings of a doctor. So some of the studies out there, um, one of them. Um, Bapu has worked on really relies on political contributions because that's a matter of public record um, campaign contributions, but that's a minority of doctors. Um, and so it's very challenging to study this, but the studies that are out there do su- support the idea that most of us on average can check, check it at the door, right? That when we see a patient then we, that we may disagree with them on many things, right? You know, I've I've taken care of serial killers and things like that, and I like to think that you know I I can separate out you know whatever we feel about various things from how do I treat your atrial fibrillation today. So we generally I think do a very good job at that. There's probably you know some of these hot button political issues um, around the edges where the politics does matter more. But when we're talking about the millions of healthcare interactions on a daily basis, the vast majority of them political differences or political similarities between doctor and patient probably don't play that much of a role. And we use the example in the book of when the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan and he gets wheeled into the operating room. uh, And before he goes under anesthesia, he says, I hope you all are Republicans. And the response from one of the surgeons who was a Democrat, one of the surgeons said, today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans, right? And I think it's that really does speak to this idea that we train really hard to do, to be clear, right? It's part of our training to to sort of separate out biases that we might carry or, or what we might think about our patient from providing them the care that they need. But we think our, our gut is that it might factor into this idea of trust and, and, you know, more enduring patient doctor relationships might just be between people who have similar values, but we don't have any evidence to support that. I periodically have patients ask me what I think about this, that, and the other. And and my approach is always to try to just tell them the ways in which I think various policies may be impacting their care and to focus on policy rather than politics, because, you know, politics is often quite removed from whether or not Medicare is covering the medication you need. Right. So, so, so there's a lot that it can get very messy very quickly. And I think that's why it's prudent for us to avoid it, but it does come up from time to time. And and I, I think helping patients understand how policies in Washington or, or at the state house are affecting their care today. That can also be done 
in a sort of politically neutral way. You have to be aware and up to date and, and obviously prudent about those conversations because you don't want to lose that trust. The book is called Random Acts of Medicine. Thank you both so much. This was, uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.